some keys in the hallway. Does that look familiar? I'm going to go push a button until the alarm goes off. We got them. When you find out you're missing them, just holler at me. It's all good. If you have your Bibles with you, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open up to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 5. And as we take a look at, at 1 Corinthians, remember as we've been going through, this is a church, and I think sometimes we lose sight of it when we study the church of Corinth. Paul loved the people at Corinth. And the other churches loved the brothers and the sisters at Corinth. It's not a question about whether or not he loved them. It's a question about, hey, there were some things that were out of line that, that Paul is going to straighten out through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide them so that they walk according to, to God's word. I mean, the bottom line is, folks, God takes us any way we come to him, doesn't he? Amen. It don't matter how I come to the Lord, doesn't matter how dirty, how filthy I am. When I come to the Lord, I cry out on His name. The book of Romans tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I call on His name and He saves me. But He don't leave me there. He don't leave me there. And part of a test of reality, uh, the way that we tell, am I offering lip service to God? Am I just saying, yes, I believe, you know, yes, uh, whatever, you know, it's, it's just with my lips. The Lord said in the book of Isaiah that my, the, my people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. How do we tell if our, if our hearts are, are really focused on the Lord? Well, the, that's what sanctification is all about. Folks, when we get saved, the, the word that takes place in our lives is the word justification. We are made just as if we'd never sinned. We're covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is God's work of cleaning us. He don't leave us in the filth. Now, you and I, it's hard for us to tell, isn't it? I mean, let's say, we, let's consider the, the story of the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son? He asked his dad, you know, give me all your money. Basically, he's saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now so I can go party. And his dad gave him the inheritance, and that's what he did. He went and partied. He had all kind of friends. Everybody loved him. He was a popular fella. He's out there just having a great time. But then what took place? As soon as the money ran out, so did the friends. And then he's looking around and he don't have no way to feed himself. He don't have no way to care for himself. So what did he do? He, he, he as a good Jewish boy, offered himself as a servant and ended up feeding someone's pigs. Now there's no lower for them to go as a, as a good Jewish son. Pigs were unclean. And he began to look at the food. Now, how many of you folks have ever slopped pigs? I, I know this is going to be hard for you to believe. I have actually slopped pigs a time or two in my life. And I have discovered that the only thing that eat more than pigs is chickens. <laughs> I never knew that before. I, I just recently learned that. Pigs, the slop that they give to pigs, it looks terrible. I have never looked at it and thought, man, I'm kind of hungry. But this young man, he looked down at what was being fed to the pigs and he says, man, he wanted to eat it. And all of a sudden he thought, you know, the servants in my father's house are treated better than this. I'm going home. 
Now for you and me, let's say we're, we're solid believers and we come across a prodigal son on his way to the pig's pen. Do we know he's a son? We don't have the ability to tell that he belongs to the father. We look at him and he's in the slop with the pigs. He looks like just one of the pigs. And now a little bit later when, he see, when we see him leave the slop, he comes climbing out of that mud and he heads back to the father. We see him then. Do we have the ability to know whether or not he's a pig or a son? When God has the ability to know. But if you belong to God, he won't leave you in the mud. He will do the work of sanctification in you. That means little by little, step by step, He makes you holy. He changes the thing. The things that I used to think were just normal part of life. Hey, this is just what you do. That's not the way I think anymore. The Lord has changed that thinking. For some people, it happens, bam, they give their life to the Lord and and there's this sharp change. For others, there's a slow change. But folks, we can't look at that, you and I, we can't look at that and begin to judge where someone's at in their walk with the Lord. What we want to see is, are they headed toward Him? Are they moving toward Him or are they falling behind? Paul's going to talk in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of us being able to judge, to see, to, to see a brother or a sister who's caught in sin and to not be afraid to tell them. To not be afraid to say, hey, this is wrong. Ultimately, to not be afraid, if it came to it, to come to the point that said, hey, man, I can't hang out with you with, when you're like this. There have been a time... I don't know, a handful of times, maybe two handfuls of times since I've been in the ministry uh, back in California where we'd have to go to a brother or sister there in the church and tell them that they weren't welcome anymore. Because the way that they were choosing to live their life and, and to, to have zero repentance about it. It's not like they were struggling and falling. They were just flaunting. They're living in it and saying, hey, this is just how it's supposed to be. You have to accept me how I am. Folks, God loves you how you are, but he won't leave you that way. And if you don't want to move forward with the Lord, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, you shouldn't hang out with the brothers. You shouldn't hang out with the sisters. The reason he says that is because the hope is their heart will say, no, I want to be, I understand what you're saying. I want to lay these things down. So we want to be able to grasp this concept that God's laying out for us. Well, folks, anytime we see a a precept in the New Testament, I promise you, you got an example of it in the Old. You can see something in the Old Testament, a story that symbolizes or tells us this work that, that God's trying to illuminate for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So while you're holding your finger there, go to Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, we're going to see the Lord take the children of Israel through a similar experience. And in Joshua chapter 7, it says in, in verse 2, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel. And he spoke to them and he said, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and looked at Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said, 
Do not let all the people go up, but let just two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shibarim. And struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. And Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their head. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites or to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content to dwell on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie on your face? Well, Joshua's kind of blown away. Remember the promise God gave him? Wherever you put the sole of your foot, I've given it to you. And so they go, they just had this great victory at Jericho, remember? The walls fell down, and they're all excited, and they look over at Ai, and they scout, it's just a little town, it's just a little place. So the men say, we don't need a whole army, just send a few. And they got shellacked. They got whooped. And Joshua's crying out to the Lord, what's going on, God, what's happening? But what is it that the Lord tells them? The Lord first says, get up, Joshua, get up, get off your face, And listen to me. Listen to what the problem is. He said, Israel has sinned and they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs from before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with them anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Get up and sanctify the people. Joshua, get up and sanctify the people. What happened? God told the people, don't take any of the silver and gold. The silver and gold is going to be set aside for work within the, 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 the temple eventually. God's going to use it. He said, you guys don't, don't touch any of that. That junk, those idols, those things that you're picking up, just don't even worry about them. Just leave them lie. And one man in one tribe didn't listen. And he picked some of the accursed things up, some of the gold idols, some of the stuff that God said not to take, and he kept it for himself, and he buried it in a hole in his tent. One man's sin in that camp affected everybody else. Because of one man's disobedience, 36 men died. And God said to Joshua, sanctify this people sanctify them folks god loves us and it's not a question of salvation it doesn't have anything to do with that it ha- it's a question of obedience will you follow god will you accept god's word as god's word if god says uh that up is up will you say i agree lord it's up 
Or are we going to argue with God's word? Because folks, the church today, there are churches today that take God's word and say, no, it doesn't really mean that. It's not, it doesn't really apply to the 20th century. So these different things that can be a part of your life, it's all okay. It's all good. Don't worry about it. God loves you like you are. But God loves you too much to leave you that way. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be holy. Don't forget, this is the same word of God that says, Be ye perfect as I am perfect. Where do we find our perfection? In Christ Jesus, we are all just men made perfect. In Him. In Christ. How are we found in Christ? We want to continually move, progress, move forward. That means there are things in my life God wants me to cut out. And if I'm so attached to the junk in my life that I won't cut it out, then I am of no use to what God wants to do. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels came and they told Lot, hey, we're destroying the city. And they grabbed Lot and they took him and they, Lot had Lot, his wife and his two daughters, right? And they snatched him up and as they're headed out the city, as they're, as they're going to a safe place, what did his wife do? She turned back. A lot of times we look at it and we think, oh, she just glanced. No, she didn't glance. Her heart, her attitude was, I'm going back. I want that. That's more important to me than being here. And it destroyed her. And it'll destroy us if we allow that to continue to take place, not only in ourselves, but in our body. In the body. The Lord wants us to, to consider those things. Now, as we leave Joshua chapter 7, just know that the Lord pointed out the man, and the man was dealt with, the sin was stricken from the camp, and the children of Israel were able to attain the victory. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 with me, if you don't mind. A lot of places to jump before we hit our text today, but I want to kind of lay out the groundwork. First Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. It says, Now if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in, in another person's matters. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. That's where it's supposed to start. See, what the Lord is laying out for us is this. There's no need to judge people on the outside. God's going to take care of all that. We shouldn't even worry about that. That's not our place. Our place is to judge inside. If we want revival, if we want the church to thrive and be alive, judgment always begins in the house of God with us, with believers. When we're living a life perhaps of complacency or we're, we're playing with sin, dilly-dallying with something where we shouldn't be, 
we're, we're focused on things when we should be focused on God and what God wants to do in us. We, we have allowed our minds, our hearts to be turned. And God says, hey, we want judgment to begin in the house of God. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, where did he go first? God's house, didn't he? He walked into God's house. What did he do? Drove out the money changers. He drove out the people that were, were not uh, real, the ones who were ripping people off, uh, the, the folks that were make-believers, not believers. He drove them out of the court of the Gentiles because the people had come, Gentiles, in the court of the Gentiles to pray, but they couldn't do that because they were in there selling and buying and doing all, making merchandise of the Lord. So Jesus cleansed that. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? For if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? There was a, a man, Jonathan Edwards, had a, a message he's famous for. It's called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sometimes we forget that. And, and I... And I I had that point brought home to me in an illustration. There was a family, mom, dad, they had one son. And they were at home listening to the news one night. As they were listening to the news, they heard that there was this outbreak of a, of a disease. It was, you know, some far off land over in Europe. It wasn't really affecting them, you know. But, but this disease was spread and kind of unchecked. And a lot of people were being infected and affected by it. Pretty soon, the next day, they're listening to the news and they've closed down the borders and they're not letting anybody fly from, from Europe over to the United States. But it was just a matter of time before, sure enough, over in, in New York City, they began to have the word of this disease having spread there to New York. And it just continued to spread. People were dying right and left. Finally, you, you come to the time of the place where and people in your own town, in your own place, they're sick and they're dying and nobody knows what to do. And so they, they come up with this plan. They, they say, listen, we need to start testing people, testing their blood. If we find the right antibodies in a person that, that, that is, has got a natural immunity to this disease, we're going to be able to cure everyone. And so they began going town to town to town to test and to try to find the person that had the right antibodies in his, in his body that were a part of his blood. One by one by one, they went through testing. They even came to this man and his family and his son. They, they went to the school, and it was in the school that they tested him, and then they waited outside for word. What's going to happen? And all of a sudden, they hear on the loudspeaker, we found someone. We found someone with the right antibodies. Someone that has the ability to, to, in their blood, help us find the cure, develop the cure. And so they, they were wandering through the crowds, and everybody's kind of whispering, where are they going, where are they going? And, and pretty soon, this, this father and mother, they see the, the docs coming right to them. And they come right up to them, and they, and they ask them, hey, is, is this your son's name? Well, yeah, that's, that's our son. And they said, well, he's the one who's got the antibody in his blood. If you come with us, we'll get to work right away on a cure. And so they're excited and they, they take him and the mom and dad, they come and they, they go walking into the, to the hospital room and the doctors are talking and all of a sudden, everybody gets real quiet. And the doctors keep saying to the dad, you know, we didn't know it was going to be a child. 
And the father's thinking, well, it's, it's fine, you know, let's, let's do what we need to do to get this cure. Well, it's going to take your son's blood. Well, that's good. We're here in the hospital. Just take what you need. No, you don't understand. We need it all. Every drop. You need every drop. Yeah, in order for us to save the world, your son is going to have to die. But we'll be able to save every person on the planet. Well, they thought about it for a moment or two, and they spent the last few moments they could with their son. But as they were walking out the room, one of the last things they would hear their child say was, Mother, Father, why are you forsaking me? Well, sure enough, within a week, people's lives are being turned around. The cure has been found. People are being granted life. And then they have this this ceremony, this service, a celebration of life for this child who gave his life that they might live. But in the back, far back in a corner, there was a couple of people just, you know, joking around, playing around. And the father, he, he could hear them. What do you think it's like for that father to, to consider the sacrifice that my son gave for you to have life? You don't have the decency. You don't have the desire to be respectful about what he gave. Folks, that's the reality of sanctification. I, I'm not sanctified because it makes me better, makes me holy, makes me righteous. It's not about me. I'm sanctified because I love the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for me. I want to be sanctified. I want to move forward. I want to live according to God's word, not because I have to or because somehow I'll be able to elevate myself and say I'm more holy than someone else. I want to look upon the sacrifice that God's son made for me, and I want to live a life worthy of equal weight to what God has done for me. That's why judgment begins in the house of God. So that that work can be wrought in our lives. Well, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that there was an issue in the church. We've already talked about the fact that they were struggling with with division. And Paul dealt with that. He talked to them about humility. He talked to them about keeping Jesus the main thing. Being focused on what really matters. But he also needs to let them know, just like like Joshua in the battle of Ai, there's sin in the camp. And somebody's got to be willing to deal with it. Someone's got to explain to a brother, hey, that's not okay, man. We got to be moving forward. We got to be moving forward with the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. In case you need a chapter and verse for why that's wrong, it's Leviticus 18, 6 through 8. But one of the points that Paul is making is, that was even illegal in the pagan world. 
Incest was not okay. But in the church in Corinth, they were just kind of overlooking this brother who was living in a life of incest and they weren't dealing with it. They weren't calling him on the table and that's not helping him out. And it's, it's not helping the church. It, it, it was affecting their ability to move forward, just like the children of Israel were defeated because they hadn't dealt with the sin that was in the camp. We, we've got to be willing to say, no, man, that's, that's who I was, but that's not who I am. And again, what he's talking about here, when he, when in, the, in the Greek tense of the verb, he's talking about a man who is habitually in this relationship. Not somebody who stumbled, who fell, who made a mistake once, who struggles. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about man or woman that is habitually in sin, that the Bible speaks against, that this is sin, and they live in it and say, I'm not going to change. And Paul says, and the Lord says, it's not okay. It's not all right. This sexual immorality, in verse 2 he says, and you are puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. He says, you guys are all happy about it. Like, like somehow you're showing an extra measure of grace by accepting sin in your midst and, and saying it's okay. It's not okay. It's okay for us to come to the Lord however we are. But we don't stay there. If we stay there, the question has to be asked. Am I a prodigal son or am I a prodigal pig? Is the conversion one of only lips or is it a conversion of my heart? Because if it's of my heart, I'll leave it. And that's why Paul is making a distinction on it, saying, hey, we've got to focus on this. We've got to deal with this. And as we deal with it, The desire is not that we cast a brother out the door or we kick someone out of church or we we deal with church discipline. The desire is that we turn a a life from sin to walking with the Lord. It was a hard lesson for me to learn. I I was doing youth group and there was a kid I had watched grow up from I don't even know how young he he first come over to our house. This was a, a kid who jumped on my back with my kids Played around, we wrestled, well, he spent a night over at my house a few times. I loved this kid with my, with my whole heart. It was a great, a great kid. We, he came up with me when I first started youth group. He was in junior high. When I got into high school, he's, he's doing good, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm excited and, and that he's coming to youth group, but he kind of starts getting in with a bad crowd. And then all of a sudden I start hearing words. I start hearing that there's trouble. I start hearing he's making bad decisions. So I'd meet with him and I'd tell him, man, you gotta, you gotta turn away from this. You gotta, you gotta turn your back on this stuff and move forward with what God wants to do in your life. And, you know, when we, me and him and I would talk, it was always seemed like it was a good thing. And, and so change surely was right around the corner. And then I'd hear some more things and I'd talk to him again and again and again. One day, Pastor Gerald, he called me into his office. And he sat me down and he says, Jackie, I I know you love this boy. But you cannot lose sight of the fact that you are called to shepherd the sheep, not to tend a wolf. And if there is a wolf among the sheep, you got to let him go. 
Sometimes you got to cut a man loose. The scripture says, for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul might be saved. Turn him over to that world he wants to run in. Why? So he's destroyed? No. So that he comes back. So, Pastor Gerald told me, they found him in the bathroom selling dope to the other kids in youth group. I can't keep him no more. Sometimes you got to cut a man loose. And I cut him loose. And I'd see him around town every once in a while, here and there. And, and sometimes he'd be coming closer and he'd ask me, he'd come back to youth group. And so we'd make some deals. Well, you bring your Bible and he, none of this stuff can happen, but it would never last. It would just be for a couple days and then he's back out there. A couple days and he's back out there. And I came to realize, broke my heart. But he is of the world. He's in the world. He's held by the bounds of the world. And he didn't want to let it go. He didn't want to come back. And to date, he never did. He stayed outside. So was he a prodigal son? Or a prodigal pig? I don't know. God ain't took him home. He belongs to the Lord, and I promise you, God loves him more than I ever could. And God, he's willing to do anything for him, isn't he? He's willing to die on the cross for his sins. So I can trust him in God's hands. But I have to take him out of where he was doing damage to the sheep. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That's what he's laying out. He's saying, you're puffed up with pride because you're letting this sin in the midst, and it's going to infect Everyone, it's not okay. You need to call him out. You need to deal with it. For I indeed, in verse 3, am absent in body, but present in spirit. I've already judged as though I were present with him who has done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and the power of our Lord, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Deliver him over to what he's asking for. The desire, the hope is that he returns, that he comes back. We ever read about that in the scripture? Think about this. Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he looks over at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. You remember? But Jesus said, I prayed for you. And when you have returned, strengthen the brethren. Peter had an issue of pride in his life, didn't he? He had a pretty solid struggle with pride. But after he denied the Lord three times, that was pretty much done. The Lord didn't say, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, and I told him no. He said, I prayed for you. So when you return, strengthen the brethren. So Peter was turned over, and he came back. Prodigal son, prodigal pig. Was it real, lip service, or real service? Well, we see it by what he did. It's real. 
What about Job? Job's just minding his own business. And Satan comes to the Lord and says, does Job love you for nothing? And, and the Lord says, oh, Job, Job, he's, he's an upright and righteous man. No sin with Job. Satan said, ah, oh, that's just because you're good to him. You take your hand of protection off of him. You let me touch him. And he'll curse you to your face. And so Job was turned over. How'd Job do? He did okay. We look at the things, the circumstances that surrounded Job's life, and we get so focused on what he lost, and we are so wrapped around the temporal that we forget about what's permanent. And we say, oh, well, what happened to his sons? Well, well, they belonged to God, didn't they? Just because a life is extinguished on this earth doesn't mean that that life is lost in an eternity in hell. When a life is lost, that's God. God is a judge. He knows whether right or wrong. And if they belong to Him, they're with Him right now. That moment. It's not the, it's not the, the, you know, the booby prize to get to spend eternity with God. That's good. But we focus on the temporal. We focus on the suffering. And we forget the reality of what was accomplished in it all. Job was able to stand before his friends and provide a witness to them that even though they were sure that everything that occurred in his life was because he was evil, what did God say in chapter 1? Job's righteous. And God revealed things in that book people are still amazed at reading today. Good came, and Job walks with the Lord today. One day... We'll get the chance to hang out with Job. Anybody else? It happened to anybody else? In 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul turned over. It says, Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, that I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Two guys that were teaching heret uh, heretical doctrine. And so God said, or, or through Paul, hey, turn them over to Satan. Why? Because not that they'll be destroyed. They're turned over to Satan that they would desire to change in return. To motivate them. The scripture lays out for us this, and it's so true, that God chastises those he loves. The Bible says if you love your children, you will discipline them promptly. It's what it teaches. It says that a man that won't discipline his kids doesn't love them. Now, that's somewhat difficult for kids to hear. But when, uh, when Kathy made, a, a, made a, our paddle at home, that's the scripture that was on it. A father that loves his sons disciplines him promptly. Kids got tired of hearing that verse as they were growing up. But it's true, isn't it? The, and the scripture says that as God loves us, he'll chastise us. He enables us or allows us to go through things, not to destroy us, but that we might draw closer to him. Because folks, a true believer, when they face those circumstances, will draw near to the Lord. And a make-believer will go away. A true believer will come and draw near unto God. And you know the exciting thing we, we read 1 Corinthians 5, and we're going to see this guy, the, the, the church in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, after they receive this letter, they deal with them, they talk to them, they, they tell them, hey, you can't be a part of the church no more, as long as you're in this incestual relationship. You know what happens in 2 Corinthians? 
he comes back. He's still a brother. Because he agreed what God's word said. Sin is sin. It shouldn't be a part of my life. You're right. I can't live habitually in this sin. So I cut it out. And he came back. And Paul said, you welcome him as a brother. You welcome him in. Because it's all about continuing on with the Lord. It's not about this, this, this idea that you can't receive salvation. That's not what it's about. The idea is you got to be sanctified. you got to be moving forward, man. It's time for us to stop holding on to all that junk that is keeping us from moving forward with the Lord and experiencing victory. Yeah. And if judgment is to begin, then it's to begin in the house of God. Among believers, among us. In verse 6 he says, Now your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our sacrifice was sacrificed for us. You know, you guys remember friendship bread? Did friendship bread ever make its rounds? through you because i kind of like friendship bread i think i was skinny before we started the friendship bread thing it started habits i just couldn't break after that but remember we you take just a little bit of that friendship bread and you'd mix it in with it and then pretty soon it was all it affected everything Listen, what he's saying is, don't allow the leaven of sin. Folks, throughout the scripture, Genesis to Revelation, leaven is a picture of sin. I used to struggle with that because in the parables, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And I thought, why? That doesn't make any sense. How can the kingdom of heaven be like something that is a picture of sin? Because, folks, he's talking about the church. And what happens in the church? Leaven comes in. You ever read the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation? Have you ever looked at it prophetically? Have you ever considered the progression of the church? Have you ever studied church history? Because the verse that we just read that talked about deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. During the Inquisition, the church used that verse to justify torturing people to death in order to save their souls. Now behind the scenes... What they're really doing is getting land. This guy's got land. I want his land. He didn't want to give me the land. So I'm going to declare him a devil worshiper. And then I'm going to torture him to death so that his soul is saved and I get his land. That's what it was all about. So when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, he's talking about the fact that if we allow sin in our midst and it's unchecked and nobody stands up and says that ain't right then it is going to affect everything around them. The, the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation begin with Ephesus, who had left their first love, remember? And they end with Laodicea, that doesn't even know the Lord. And that's the way the church is today. Folks, there are churches all around that are saying, no, what God's word says is sin is not sin. It's not real. You know, it's okay. It's okay. I have an uncle that actually is responsible for me ever getting back into music. He came back into my life when we were about 30. He was young, youngest of all the, my dad's brothers. And uh, his name was Bruce. 
was so gifted in music, the guy could play any instrument you ever heard of. I mean, he had trumpets and pianos and guitars and bass. He had it all. Could sing, could play, could, could do everything, but he had a struggle. Somewhere along the lines in his life, he bought the lie that he was uh, homosexual, that he was born that way, and then that's how he ought to live his life. And there were times where he would come to the church and he'd really be focusing on trying to, to lay that aside. But then there'd be that line, you know, well, I'm born this way. Folks, I was born with a desire to steal. I would love to come to your house and steal all your stuff. But that's not okay. It's not all right. I can't just say, when the policemen come to me and say, well, Pastor Jackie, it's not a very good idea for you to be stealing. Well, you know, I was born a thief. That's the way. You know, I was, come out the womb, the first thing I did was steal a toy from someone. That's not hard to see, is it? My kids stole stuff from me their whole life. They're still stealing. What do you mean? Oh, I... Cole says, Dad, I, I, need to, I need to go. Mom says to go get milk. I give him 20 bucks. He goes to get milk, comes back. I never see him again. <laughs> that milk didn't cost 20 bucks. <laughs> oh, but it's okay because we're born that way. Folks, what that's called is we're born in sin. All of us are. All of us have a propensity to some sin. It's okay, and it doesn't make you a worse person than anyone else. In fact, it makes you just like everyone else. That you have a struggle with sin. Well, my uncle, he, he would struggle with it. There, there even came a time in his life where he, he really turned away from what was going on, and, and uh, he got married, and him and his, he, he was married to a woman. They were, they were happy. Things were going great. He was serving in a worship team in a big church in Phoenix, Arizona, that's on TV all the time, playing all this music. But one day while he's playing all that music, do you know that Satan has people that are part of the church? Because there was a guy in that church that came up and, and just began working on my uncle until he left his wife, left the church, and went with him. But he had AIDS. So... My uncle got AIDS. And I remember after that happened, it kind of really rattled him down to his core. And that's when I was about 30 years old. And he come to me and, and uh, you know, we, we were just hanging out and, and loving on him. I mean, he's my uncle. He's family. He's never not family. He always will be family. I love my uncle to the day he died. He took this old Gill guitar and he said, Jackie, I'm not going to be able to play this thing for much longer, but I think... You should use this in service to the Lord. So that was the next time after I had been a kid that I grabbed up a guitar and I started to play. And I remember my uncle sharing with me, he says, Jackie, you know how I know that God's forgiven me and that, that I have a relationship with him? And I says, no, no, Uncle Bruce, how do you know that? He says, you know, I was praying, God, can you ever forgive me for all the things I've done and for, for all the things I've been a part? And I don't know, God, if you'll, if you'll really forgive me. He said, one night I was sleeping and I had a dream that I was dying. And it, he, he said, I was all thin and, and, and you know, I just knew that, that that was the end of the road for me. And he said, but I was in a rocking chair 
And Jesus was holding me and rocking me and whispering in my ear, it's going to be okay. Because that's the point. Folks, the world will lie to us and say, you can live in whatever kind of sin you want to. You can live in whatever you think you were born to. You can be a part of all those things, but, but that is going to destroy you. You know that, right? My uncle lived maybe a year beyond that before AIDS took him. And it was a fulfillment of a promise in God's word that the wages of sin is death. And it ain't no different for him than it is for me. Because that same disease that took him had a part to play in my life as well. So when we consider, we see, we recognize that God's word is true. All God's trying to do is save as many as we can. Instead of focusing on elevating ourselves and saying, well, I'm better than this person or that person. No, we're not. We're all the same. We're all going to die of the same disease. That disease is called sin. And the cure for that disease is the blood of Jesus Christ. And He shed that blood that we might be forgiven. And because He shed that blood and we're thankful for what He's done for us, then we want to move toward Him. Whatever that means, i got to lay aside, I'll lay it aside. Whatever it is that's holding me back, I want to lay it aside. And we, we want to be willing to do those things. We want to take away the leaven in our life. For Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, in verse 8, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You've probably heard before, the Greek word for sincerity literally means without wax. Why? Because when they were out there in Greece and they were making statues, and by the way, if you go to Greece today, they got statues everywhere. You know something sim- similar that they all have? Well, miss an arm, nose fell off, you know, parts that aren't apart, heads gone. Some of those happen because of time. Some of them because they were made with wax. What do you mean? Well, this guy had been working for a year on his statue, chiseling, and all of a sudden, one day, the very last time he's going to chisel out a piece, he makes a mistake, he hits it too hard, and the arm falls off. Well, I've just been working on this for a year. I can't start over. What am I going to do? I'm going to get some wax. We'll heat it up. I'm going to make this glue out of this wax, and I'm going to stick the arm back on. And I'm going to sell it. But it was not sincere. It had wax. And when the days get hot, some guy go out into his garden and look at this pretty statue he bought and the arms laying on the ground beside him. Because the statue wasn't sincere. It was made with wax. It wasn't real. We want to be real. We want to be filled with truth. Sincere. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. But I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. There was a time in the church that people thought in order to be holy, they had to withdraw themselves from the world. And so a man would sit on a pole in the middle of nowhere for his whole life. Way to go. I mean, 
People are getting saved right and left around you. Look at that fellow sitting on a pole. What's he doing that for? Because he's trying to remove himself from all the sin in the world. So he removed himself to sit on top of this pole forever. Man, well, waste of time. Paul said, I'm not talking about the sinners in the world. You'd have to float above the world. You couldn't be in the world. He said, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying to not hang out with someone named a brother who says I'm a believer and who is living this way and thinking he don't have to change it. Paul says, that's what I'm talking about. That's what he says. He says, look, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral of this world or covetous or extortioners or idolaters, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. What's he saying? Folks, he's not talking about someone who struggles with sin. How many people struggle with sin? I can't be the only one. He's not talking about people who struggle. He's talking about people who are living unrepentant lives in sin. That are saying, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. That's who he's talking about. And when he's talking about sexually immoral, it's easy for the church, quote unquote, to point their finger at the homosexual community. But they need to remember there's four pointing back at them. Because sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. It's the same word from which we get the word pornography. And there are people who are living lives wrapped up in pornography that don't think there's anything wrong with it. There are people, it it speaks of any sexual immorality. Any sex inside, around, or outside of marriage that is not under the marriage covenant is wrong. It's sin, period. That's the end of the discussion. Anything outside, and by the way, yes, marriage is defined in the Bible as between a man and a woman. And the reason why the, the big ruckus over why should we care who wants to declare what to be marriage, because where do you think marriage came from? Genesis chapter 2. That's where marriage was invented. So you can do whatever you want to out there in the world, but don't mess with what God has laid out as what marriage is. Sexual morality is anything outside, around, under, anything that is not what God has as deemed as part of the, the marriage relationship. Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from you the evil person. He says, hey, you guys got to deal with it. You know, Jesus told us how to do that in Matthew chapter 18, right? We ought to learn how to put that to practice. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus doesn't say, if you have a problem with the brother, go talk to Jackie about him. So he'll straighten them out. That's not what it says. It says, if you have ought against your brother, go to your brother and talk to him about it. And if he doesn't receive or you don't receive satisfaction, then it says, take two or three so that the the matter can be confirmed by by the voice of two or three witnesses. That means you take two or three people, you sit down with a brother, and if those two or three guys think that you're the one who has a problem... Uh, you're the one who has a problem. And if they say it's him, or if you can't get to where you need to go, then the scripture says, then you bring them before the, the elders of the church, and they will judge. And if he doesn't want to receive the judgment of the elders of the church, 
Then the Bible says, treat him as an unbeliever and a tax collector. Now, I will go outside and share the gospel with any tax collector, whether it's, you know, a lost, especially a lost tax collector. He's saved, I don't need to do that. But I'll go out, and I, but I'm not going to invite the tax collector over to my house, sit down, look around, especially in those days. You know why? Because tax collector made their money based on how much they could steal from you. Remember that little guy Zacchaeus that Jesus found? Zacchaeus returned all the things that he had stolen because he was a tax collector. Matthew, the same way. What's the point? The Bible says you treat him as an unbeliever. That doesn't mean you hate him. It means you love him. You share the truth with him. You reach out to him with the gospel. But you have to close off opportunity of fellowship i used to tell my my son jc had this big heart and he always wanted to pick up stray animals in the neighborhood and and bring them home and we're going to take care of them and we had a zoo for a while one day he come home with a girl that was a kind of a new animal for him (laughs) and he says uh dad you know she's got this this bad life and and can she live in our trailer and we'll take care of her and we'll make her okay we'll we'll help her be okay you know and and i actually liked the fact that he had compassion on someone less fortunate than him but i told him that i wasn't willing to sacrifice him for her i was willing to do a lot of things to help her out but I'm not going to sacrifice my child. I don't believe that's what God calls us to. I believe God calls us to reach out to the lost and help in a lot of ways. But there are some ways we ought to have the wisdom to know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. It turns out that, that she was running a big scam and, and you know, we pray for her and, and send her on her way, but... We want to have the wisdom to know, hey, she's not a believer and I want to give her the truth and I want to tell her the gospel, but I'm not sacrificing my kids for her. And that's the same way it is in the corporate body here because we're God's kids. And God doesn't look down on a person who calls himself, quote unquote, a brother who wants to live in sin and infect his kids. God's like, that's not okay. It's not all right. So according to Matthew chapter 18, we want to be willing to do what God's calling us to do, the hard things. Wouldn't it be nice if everything was just easy? I would like it that way. I would think that would be great. Good news is when Jesus comes back, it will all be easy. But until that time, we're called to occupy until he comes. Amen? Amen. And uh, I'm excited because I was supposed to end earlier. Sorry, but I didn't. And... We have an opportunity this morning to, to hear special music. Emily Plue, who was chosen as All-State Choir, is that right? Which is pretty cool. It was in the paper. Is she going to share? <clears throat> She's going to share a song with us. And as she does, I would just encourage you, as you hear the words of, uh, of the song that she shares with us, consider the word that God brings us today. And make a decision to walk a walk of sanctification toward our Lord and Savior. 
Amen. Come on up, Emily.